so good to have you with us tonight. We have someone that's going to be leaving us and going back to California. And we want to pray for Martha because we are so blessed and thankful to have had her be a part of our church for so long. And, and uh, we just want her to know that we're going to be praying for her and asking God's blessings upon her every day when she gets back home, be with her family. So, uh, watch the hands on it there. There you go. Seth's going to play. There he is. She is. Let's pray for Martha. Father, we're thankful so much this evening for the opportunity to, uh, to ask you, Lord, to, to bless her as she prepares to go back to California. And, uh, Lord, that you would... Uh, give her safe passage there, as well as, Lord, every open door and opportunity that uh, she needs, Lord, to settle down and settle in, uh, to be around her family once again. And uh, we do ask you, Father, to protect her, provide for her every need, Lord. And uh, we pray, Father, that you'll open every door for her to find that place of fellowship and, and a place of, of uh, uh, community, Lord, as far as her church is concerned. And and we just ask you, Father, just to continue to bless her and, and use her, Father. Lord, let her continue to be used of you as she, as she declares you in the name of Jesus. And we're just so thankful and so blessed to have had her here with us for these years. And so we thank you, Father, for the privilege of lifting her up tonight in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Praise the Lord. Yeah, you can clap for her. Amen. <laughs> been a very wonderful part of our of our of our uh, church family well I don't have any announcements myself so let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 10 Ezekiel chapter 10 what has been happening since chapter 8 is that the Lord has now given Ezekiel a second vision. Whereas the first vision that we saw back in chapter 1 was about the glory of God and, 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 and allowing Ezekiel to see God's glory in a, in a very special way. Now he begins this new vision or as he began the vision back in chapter 8, of allowing him to see the glory of God again, but this time for a reason, which is that he would realize what was coming upon Judah and Jerusalem for their sin. And so in preparation of showing him all of this sin and abomination that Judah has been partaking in for all the years that God has warned them through chapters 8 all the way through 11 and, and when we get there we'll see that this is the completeness of the vision along the way God allows him to see the glory throughout to remind him who is in control of all these things 
As we begin here in chapter 10, he begins to see this work of, of the cherubim, the, the angels. We saw a little bit of that last time when the angels were those that had been separated, a certain number that had been separated to, to actually uh, bring the judgment, but in particular one angel that was described as a man wearing linen. I mentioned last time that this was more than likely Jesus in his pre-incarnate uh, state, what many theologians call a Christophany, an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. There are numbers of Christophanies or appearances of Christ in the Old Testament in various forms. But once again, the angels themselves that are mentioned here in chapter 10 are, are those that surround the, the hovering throne that was seen back in chapter 1. So it reminds us of who this is, and this is, of course, the throne of God. And so we begin in verse 1 that says, Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared over them, as it were, a sapphire stone, as the appearance of the likeness of a throne. And he spake unto the man clothed with linen, and said, Go in between the wheels, even under the cherub, and fill thine hand with coals of fire from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in in my sight. And now the cherubim stood on the right side of the house when the man went in. Speaking, of course, of the temple. And the cloud filled the inner court. And then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with a cloud. And the cord was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. And the sound of the cherubim's wings was heard even to the outer court as the voice of the Almighty God when he speaketh. And it came to pass that when he had commanded the man clothed with linen, saying, Take fire from between the wheels, from between the cherubim, then he went in and stood beside the wheels. And one cherub stretched forth his hand from between the cherubim unto the fire that was between the cherubim, and took thereof and put it into the hands of him that was clothed with linen, who took it and went out. The topic of judgment is never a popular one, and really shouldn't be. I don't know anyone who enjoys having their sins pointed out or, or being warned about any coming judgment. But the Lord has a purpose in judgment, albeit, of course, so we know that the judgment is at times distributed as a punishment for sin, a punishment for disobedience, 
and rebellion. But his purpose and judgment also, and if you will include discipline in that, the purpose of God's judgment and discipline is always to arouse us. His people. To draw closer to him. To seek his forgiveness and his help in our time of need. I know that there will be some people from time to time that will say, well, you know what, we don't need to be asking for forgiveness anymore. Well, I don't know about you, but sometimes I falter and I fail. And I would just rather just go to the Lord and say, Lord, forgive me. Because I live before you. And I, just like David and, and, and Moses and others, in the scriptures have come to you and say, Lord, against you and you alone have I sinned. So even if I sin against someone else, I've really sinned against the Lord and I don't want to carry that. I know that, I know that Christ has died for me. I know that he has shed his blood for me. I know that he did what he did on the cross. But I think I've used this expression many times before. A husband who may say something or do something to his wife, and he realizes it doesn't just say, well, the Lord's already forgiven me anyway. But he goes to her and says, please forgive me. So how much more should we not go to the Lord, who has already forgiven us anyway, through the blood of Christ? And still, we can go on and move on, you know, with that in mind. So what I'm saying is that It makes us realize our need to draw closer to the Lord. It would almost be an obvious statement to say that we usually draw closer to God through suffering rather than through the good times of life. Even though some believe otherwise, but to their own disappointment. Eventually to their own disappointment. Because I know there's a lot of people who today are saying, listen, you just need to be happy and just be, you know... uh, getting everything that you are because you're a child of God and you should just but when I go through the trial or if I go through the fire that's when I know that he draws near to me and in turn I need to draw near to him And then when we get through the fire, we get through the storm, I don't want to walk away. I want to stay there. Y'all understand that? You know, it's, it's really what we all should want. To really just stay there with God. Stay there with the Lord. Not use him as some vessel to get to, what I, to get to where I want to go or to get to what I, or, or to get something that I want and just say, well, thanks, Lord. It's great. Thanks for doing that. See you later. No, 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 I I realize it humbles me when he brings me through a storm. But I just want to be close to where he is and draw ever stronger in him. But when we're disciplined by God's hand through trials and hardships, and, and that lovingly, I might add, it moves us to cry out for his mercies. 
It is in such times that many of us trust the Lord, and, and He saves many from dooming themselves eternally. If it were even possible, you know, we, we, would, we would just run ourselves into the ground. It's a good thing that the Lord cares for us. Ezekiel 10 gives us a picture not only of God's coming judgment, but, but also of the future restoration that, that Jesus Christ will bring when He returns to this earth. Remember that, <coughs> excuse me, remember that the prophet Ezekiel was sitting in house arrest, surrounded by some of the leaders of the exiles back in chapter 8 when, when suddenly the Spirit of God came upon him and gave him a shocking vision. The Lord was removing His presence and glory from the temple and the people. And once His presence was removed, there would be nothing to hold back His judgment. And that brings us here to this chapter where he says again in verse 1, Then I looked, and behold, in the firmament, in the heaven that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared over them as it were a sapphire stone, as the appearance of the likeness of a throne. And he spake unto the man clothed with linen and said, Go in between the wheels, even under the cherub, and fill thine hand with coals of fire from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in, in my sight. Let me, let me just say that uh, in the King James, we see it says cherubims, uh, and I keep saying cherubim, and, and that's okay because the I am at the end of the word, cherubim, means plural. It's a plural form, so cherubim is okay to say. Cherub itself is a singular word, so there was one cherub, as you saw there in, um, in verse 2. The throne of God appears once again as in chapter 1, and now appears in the midst of the judgments, implying that whatever intermediaries that God employs, in other words, in this case, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, the Lord Himself controls them. That's what the appearance of the throne is about. It's to say that no matter what intermediaries God uses, He's still in control. The Babylonians are not in control. God is in control. And all that takes place flows as a necessary consequence of God's holiness. So when you see this image or this vision of, of a throne that's hovering, it is the vision of God overseeing all things. And because He's holy... All these things are taking place because of that necessary cons consequence that comes from His holiness. You know, if God wasn't holy and if, if it didn't matter whether we did good or bad, then what would, be the, what would be the point? See, the point is God is holy and we're not. God is holy and He wants us to be holy as He is holy. That is what it says in the book of Leviticus. But the children of Israel who belonged to him and walked away from him, gotten away from his holiness, gotten away from his righteousness, gotten away from his word, now they've disobeyed God and now they rebel against God. Are there consequences to that? 
Is it possible that we can say that nowadays we are so sophisticated in our understanding of things that it doesn't matter what we do, God is different than He was before? May I ask you a question? Is God different than He was before? No, He's still holy. I guess the, the question I want to ask kind of from the depth of the, of, of the inside of me is, you know, where, where do people get off trying to say that, you know, God is different? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, just as Jesus is the same yesterday, and today, and forever. And Ezekiel is allowed this vision for a very good reason. If all a person does is look at the sins of the land, they would end up extremely discouraged. So God allows him to continue to see the glory of God and to let him know that God is in control. And this is something that we need to do because we live in a land that is full of sin. We live in a society that is full of unrighteousness. And in fact, is probably... worse exponentially than Israel ever was. Well, they were pretty bad. <laughs> and so was the world back in Genesis chapter 6. Pretty bad for God to say, you know, all he saw was evil continually. So he's given this vision constantly. Always a reminder to look up. Look up. I'm in control. And what did Ezekiel do? He lifted his eyes higher and got a fresh vision of the throne of God. He needed to be reminded of God's perspective. He needed to be reminded of God's control. He needed to be reminded of God's sovereignty. As do we. Especially in these last days in which we live, knowing that judgment is right around the corner. For the prophet, there was a need to know that the Lord was on the move as his glory was departing. Because, folks, the whole picture that we've seen since chapter 8 is the Lord is departing his temple. He has moved from the Holy of Holies. Now his glory is at the, at the, at the door of the, of, the tabor, or the, of the temple. And he's just about out. And you may wonder, why didn't he already leave? Because God is a God of mercy. And if anyone would cry out. God would heal them. God would deliver them. We already saw back in chapter 9 the, the remnant that cried out unto God. And God was going to take care of them. God is a merciful God, but as we said last time as well, there comes a time when that limit comes to a close, or that mercy comes to, a, you know, to its limit, and then God has to act, and nothing is going to keep him from doing what he has to do. So from a hovering throne to burning coals is what we're going to look at here in this next few verses. 
the man clothed with linen. As I said, the pre-incarnate Christ has set aside his writer's inkhorn. If you remember, he was the one that went and marked all of the remnant who hadn't fallen into rebellion against God. And he sets aside his inkhorn and he picked up a handful of burning coals from between the wheels which represent the cherubim, coals from the brazen altar, and in obedience to God, we're going to see later, he scatters the coals over Jerusalem. Now, this was taking place in this vision. And remember, all of this is going to take place before the actual judgment happens. And it's going to happen in 586 B.C., August 16th, to be precise, of 586 B.C., according to the calculations, as it were. So this was taking place in the vision, but in the physical world, we would see this poured out by the Babylonians as reported in 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 8 and 9. So again, you need to look at this. I know that I, I, I did this a couple of weeks ago, but... But let's look at verses 8 and 9 of 2 Kings chapter 25, because it says, And in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which is the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and this is what I was talking about as far as 586 B.C. is concerned, came Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem. And he burnt the house of the Lord. There it is. He burnt the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem and every great man's house burnt he with fire. Historically on that day in 586 B.C. is when the temple of the Lord was destroyed by fire. And all the houses of Jerusalem were burned by fire. And the house of the king was burned by fire. And the houses of the leadership were burned by fire. And all that the people saw was judgment. But there was such impurity throughout the city that there was no recourse. There was no recourse. God had already said, this is going to happen. And the prophecy given to Ezekiel is, is, is in a vision form, but it happens not, not long after he received this vision. Now, how fire is perceived in the Scripture is very important. It's quite important. How we see fire in the Scripture. What I mean by that is this, that that those who seek to walk in God's way, the coals of God are for purification and for healing. As the prophet Isaiah discovered in his great vision of God in the temple, God gave Isaiah a vision in Isaiah chapter 6. That day that King Isaiah died. We'll jump to verse 3 where it says, and when, This is part of the vision that Isaiah received. One cried unto another and said, speaking of the seraphim, angels, And said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. I, I don't know if you've made the connection or not, but once again, Isaiah, who's the prophet of the Lord and who's going to have to prophesy against Judah over their sins as well, is given a vision of the glory of God and of the holiness of God. Always first and foremost. The post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 6 it says, Then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand. Now notice, a coal, a fire in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth, and he said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. God was preparing and purifying the lips and the life and the heart of this prophet through fire, the fire of purification, the fire of healing. And what was it that, I, that Isaiah said? I am undone. You know, unless we as believers in Jesus Christ can recognize ourselves that, to be without Christ undone, which by the way is a very interesting word in the Hebrew, undone here, because what it, what it signifies is a life that is completely disintegrated into as many little pieces as you can, as you can consider. Disintegration. What does it mean to integrate, <clears throat> but to bring together, <clears throat> to fit into its, in, you know, every molecule, every atom and every molecule in its place, and it integrates. Be thankful you are sitting on an integrated chair, because if it wasn't integrated, it would be disintegrated, and you would be on the floor. Maybe the floor wouldn't be there either, so thank God for that. The point is this. When Isaiah saw the, the holiness of God, it disintegrated him. And he says, I am undone. I have a man of unclean lips. And he recognized his unholiness in the presence of a holy God. But the coal touched his lips. In some way, it, it, it would be as if cauterizing and healing his uncleanness. The uncleanness of his lips, the uncleanness of his mind, the uncleanness of his heart, the uncleanness of his life. And he says, thine iniquity is taken away. And thy sin is purged.
What a healing. By fire. But essentially, the same coals may consume the impure, as the people of Sodom and Gomorrah found out. Because if you go back to Genesis chapter 19, verse 24, notice what it says. It says, Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from where? From the Lord out of heaven. Essentially the same coal. The coal that heals is also the coal that can judge and destroy. The same sun that warms and can melt wax is also the same sun that can harden the ground to become fallow. You know, we're told that in emergency situations, you can add eight drops of chlorine to water to purify it. An emergency situation. Don't go home and try this, please. Emergency situation. You can add eight drops of chlorine to water to purify it, but if you drank chlorine bleach (laughs) straight out of the bottle, of course, it'd kill you or make you pretty sick. The same goes for hydrogen peroxide. By the way, there's a hydrogen peroxide that actually can be used with food. But it's the same thing. You could use hydrogen peroxide and it can, it, it can uh, purify the water, but you don't drink hydrogen peroxide. You just don't. Unless you like to foam up on the inside. You know. Sorry about that vision. Well, let me say this. This brings to mind, <clears throat> this brings to mind the hands of Jesus. The very same hands that would pick up the coals of judgment, the very same hands that picked up the coals of judgment that we see here in chapter 10, the very same hands of Jesus that receive the nail marks that declare his love for us in taking the punishment that we deserve for our sin, those very same hands will one day hold the rod of wrath when he comes to judge. Very same hand. The hand that heals, the hand that judges. Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9. I will declare the decree the Lord has said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Not begotten in the way that we understand being begotten between the Father and the Son, because the Son of God is eternal. Did not become begotten as we became begotten. But in fact, he was begotten when he came to this earth, but in a very special way. 
All that aside, we read on, and it says, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Verse 9, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. People need to remember and they need to understand and they need to know that Jesus, blessed Jesus, meek and mild, will also be Jesus, the great I am, who will come to judge the nations when he returns to set up his kingdom on the throne of David for a thousand years in Jerusalem. So the warning is given and the choice is ours. The choice being to run to the altar where sin is atoned or the altar will be brought to you. The altar in this case is brought to Judah, the altar of judgment. That may sound, that may sound harsh, but let's face it, we cannot sugarcoat the truth. So the best thing for us to do is to be right with God, to be right with the Lord, to surrender our hearts to him to surrender our whole life to him. Verses 3 and 4 now of our text in Ezekiel 10, it says, Now the cherubim stood on the right side of the house when the man went in, and the cloud filled the inner court. And then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub and stood over the threshold of the house, and the house was filled with a cloud, and the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's Glory. So as soon as the man in linen went in among the cherubim and the wheels of this hovering throne, the, the cloud of God's glory filled the inner court. But then, as mentioned earlier, God's glory moved from the cherubim to the door of the temple. And immediately the brilliant, radiant light of God's glory flooded the temple and the inner courtyard where Ezekiel stood. And this is what happens in verse 5. It says, And the sound of cherubim's wings were heard even to the outer court as the voice of the Almighty God when he speaketh. And there's this, this sound that takes place that Ezekiel hears in this vision. And in effect, when you read this whole thing together, you realize that it is connected to this cloud that we find mentioned here in this particular chapter. The movement of the, of, of the cherubim are, are moving because of God's moving. God is moving, you see. And he's getting ready to move out completely. Let's go back for a moment to this word cloud. The Hebrew word anan means a covering. As a cloud is something that covers, you know, when we have a cloudy day, it kind of covers us from the heat and the, from the sun to a certain extent. The word is used as a symbol of the divine presence as indicating the splendor of that glory which it conceals. Now, 
And so here again, we, we have a picture of, of the moving of, of the throne of God away from the sanctuary, yet God's glory continues still to be revealed. But eventually, it will be taken up as with a cloud. Now, it's an interesting thing. That if you read Psalm 18, verses 11 and 12, because in Psalm 18, verse 11, it says, He made darkness a secret place. And, and we need to understand that if you read this in context, you realize that it's not talking about that God is, is, is a part of darkness or, or, or is, is hiding from the, from the standpoint of being in darkness. No, but he made darkness a secret place in the fact that his pavilion, it says, round about him were dark waters and thick, cloud, uh, thick clouds of the skies. But then you read in verse 12, it says that the brightness that was before him, his thick cloud passed, or his thick clouds passed, hailstones and coals of fire. So in, so in effect, the, the, the picture here is that the clouds themselves are in, in fact concealing the glory of God. But when the cloud is referred to as a bright cloud, as in our text here, it is symbolic of the divine presence and was called the kavod, the kavod or the glory. Uh, sometimes uh, the, the, uh, uh, the word... Shekinah is used to speak of the, the glory of God. That, that is not a, the, the, the main Hebrew word, and it's not in the scripture. It's kavod, which is the glory, and the glory that is departing, Ichabod, you know, Ichabod, like Ichabod Crane, uh, the name, Ichabod, is, it means the glory has departed. So here, uh, it's, 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 this cloud is dealing with this glory and the divine presence uh, of God. The scripture refers then to worship and thanks being given during the beginning of the reign of, of Solomon when the kavod glory of the Lord would arrive. And so I'd like for you to, to turn with me to Second Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles 7. We know this usually because of verse 14. We're not going to read verse 14 today. If my people which are called by my name. That's the verse that we're not going to look at tonight. Uh, but if you're down there, make sure you mark it if you haven't marked it in your Bibles. But in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, I want you to see that this first part, you know, here, here Solomon now uh, is the king and God has allowed him now uh, to... Uh, build the house of the Lord, and, and so on. And, and in verse 1 it says, Now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house. So now here's a worship service. Now, now please look at this. Here's a worship service where they're worshiping God, and, and the, the cloud of God's glory falls upon this place, and it fills the house. And notice in verse 2, the priests, <coughs> excuse me, the priests could not enter into the house because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. They could not enter into the Holy of Holies because the glory of the Lord was there. Let, let, me, let me give you a, a a really big hint here that the reason why we 
are so blessed with the presence of the Lord every time we gather in his name is because the veil of the temple that kept the priests or anyone from going into that area when the presence of the Lord was there has, has been torn in two. And we have come in uh, humbly, but yet boldly, we come to the throne of grace because of what Jesus Christ has done. So understand that our worship is important, our worship is significant, our worship is valid when we worship in spirit and in truth, that we worship with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we express our love to God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. All right. So now if the cloud comes, we go home. Just think of that. So, you know, praise the Lord if he comes. I mean, you know, all right. But if the cloud's not there, it doesn't mean that he's not here. Please understand that as well. So the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. And when all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord opened, uh, or the glory of the Lord upon the house, they bowed themselves with their faces to the ground upon the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. So when the people's hearts were toward God, as, as Solomon was at that, mom, at that moment in time, and, and really just seeking God's wisdom and God's understanding, nothing else. By the way, do you know what, what it was that Solomon had, had, had asked God to have? He wanted to discern between good and evil. And God granted him that. You know, that, that's the wisdom that he wanted. You know, we sometimes say, you know, Solomon was the wisest man in the world. But his, but his desire, and if you can go back to chapter 3 of this and read that. It, it's just his desire was, was, was to discern between good and evil. To discern between right and wrong. And today, you know, when we stand for the word of God and we stand strong on every word of God's uh, scriptures that he's given to us, and people are saying, you guys are just, you know, you guys just worship the Bible and blah, blah, blah. You know what? Does that mean that you don't care to discern between good and evil? Because I think we need to. Even as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to, know, we need to discern. Why do you think that Paul mentions that discerning of spirits is a gift given to the church? Because we live in dangerous times. We live in perilous times. And we need to discern. And God says he was pleased with Solomon asking for this. But there was a warning that the Lord would leave. If, and may I ask you to jump down to verse 19, because here's the big if. But if, verse 19, but if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, 
and shall go and serve other gods and worship them. Do you know that David had his problems? I think I mentioned this not too long ago. David had his problems. We all know what those problems were, but, but understand this. He never bowed his knee to another. He never bowed his knee to a God, to a God or to an idol. Never. And the Lord's testimony about David was always his faithfulness to God and never bowing his knee to an idol. But Solomon, if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, which I have set before you, and shall go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I pluck them up by the roots out of my land, which I have given them, and this house, which I have sanctified for my name, will I cast out of my sight and, I, and will make it to be a proverb and a byword, byword among all nations. In other words, then this is going to, people are going to be talking about this place because of what you did. And this house which is high shall be an astonishment to everyone that passes by it. So that he shall say, why has the Lord done this unto this land and unto this house? And it shall be answered because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them forth out of the land of Egypt and laid hold on other gods and worshiped them and served them. And therefore has he brought all this evil upon them. In effect, what it's saying is that God has taken his glory and departed. Ichabot, the glory, has departed. What must be remembered in all of this is that the Lord will not share his glory with idols. And do you remember what God showed Ezekiel? When he opened up the walls and he went into the inner chambers of the priests and the ugliness of the paintings on the walls and everything that was shown to him, he was showing them the insides of their heart and their minds. And they were worshiping other gods and committing all sorts of abominations. God says, I will not share my glory. Isaiah 42, verse 8, I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. And so God was abandoning his house. His glory moved to the east gate. Poised to move again in chapter 11, verse 23, as we'll see later on. So if the nation would not glorify God in their obedience, they would glorify Him in judgment. For God and sin cannot coexist. God and sin cannot coexist. Now understand, of course, that God can forgive sin. And He does. But God and sin cannot coexist. Which is kind of an interesting word uh, to coexist because I think we have all seen uh, these bumper stickers that say coexist and they're written with all kinds of religious symbols of different kinds of religions uh, to represent each letter of, of the word coexist. And um, 
That's man's attempt to uh, say, well, really, there's really only one God. But in fact, Jesus himself made it pretty clear. We're not here to coexist with any other religion. There's only one God. And then Jesus made it even more clear who he was when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father except by me. No man. There's no other way because there's no other God. This attempt to marry Christianity, I couldn't get it out, to marry Christianity with Islam and call it Chrislam, it's just a lie of the devil. Just to bring more confusion, just to murk, you know, murky the waters a little bit more. The God of Islam is not the God of, of the Bible. The God of Islam is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Islam is not the God of, of, the, of the Christian. And there's no way. We have allowed politicians in 2000, since 2011 to try, to try to dictate to us that these two religions really are based on the same God. And that is just outright insanity. Well, verse 6 of our text. Because I go on with that and then I'll never finish. And it came to pass that when he had commanded the man clothed with linen, saying, Take fire from between the wheels, from between the cherubim. Then he went in and stood beside the wheels. And one cherub stretched forth his hand from between the cherubim unto the fire that was between the cherubim and took thereof and put it into the hands of him that was clothed with linen who took it and went out. We're already told what he went out to do, to scatter it over Jerusalem. Ezekiel now watched as this man clothed in linen obeyed God. And of course, that is, that is the testimony of Jesus Christ who voluntarily surrendered his glory in heaven and came to this earth, put upon himself flesh. And yet, all the while, he was God, the second person of the Trinity, and fulfilled what we needed to have fulfilled. He obeyed God. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it says he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. When he walked over and stood beside one of the wheels of God's chariot throne, one of the cherubim gave him a handful of burning coals. And then the man immediately went forth to execute God's judgment against Jerusalem and its citizens, as we've already described. But to be clear, this man, as I said before, is Jesus. Now, in terms of what we've been saying about God and his glory, God covered this man's flesh. Or actually, I should say God covered him in flesh. Jesus was covered 
in flesh. His splendor concealed while on earth except one place, the Mount of Transfiguration. But during his last week, which by the way, this week begins the, uh, the Jewish festival of Pesach, Passover. I believe tomorrow night. Yeah, that's me thinking out loud. Okay. But it's this week. During his last week, the week of Pesach, Passover, he, he, Jesus entered into Jerusalem, if you remember, on the foal of a donkey. More than likely, coming from where he did at the Mount of Olives, more than likely he entered through the east gate. He would cleanse the temple. He goes in and he, and he cleanses the temple from all of the, the, the money changers and all. And the, 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 he does it another time. And then he would exit, again, interestingly enough, exiting out the east gate and back to the Mount of Olives. And I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving out a few details here, but I'm just saying he went in, then of course he had the supper, and of course when he leaves, he goes to the Mount of Olives through the east gate. He has to. That's the easiest way out. So what an interesting connection of Jesus covered in flesh, covering his glory, going out the east gate. Back to the Mount of Olives. And then after all the things that happened, hearing the people say, Crucify him, crucify him. When a week earlier, a few days earlier, they had heard, he had heard them crying out, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And he's taken out to Golgotha. And he's crucified. Somehow it is, it, it is obvious to us that on his return to the Mount of Olives to ascend into heaven as he would, that once again he would probably go through the East Gate. And while he may have been rejected in the in the inn in Bethlehem as a baby, his ultimate rejection was in his father's house. As I mentioned, we don't want to forget that at the Mount of Transfiguration, his glory was indeed revealed for a brief moment. Matthew 17, verse 5, it says, While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud. Notice the cloud again. 
a bright cloud. And what do we say about a bright cloud? The bright cloud was significance of His divine presence. If anything shows us that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, a member of the Godhead, it is this. We've talked so much about everything that Jesus said to, to make it clear that He was God in the flesh by saying, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the living water. I am the gate. I am the way. It is here that He shows us. While He yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Listen to Him. Well, the audience was interesting. <laughs> because it was just Peter, James, and John. But they got to see His glory. And when He returns, when Jesus Christ returns, I want you to notice Matthew 24, verse 30, it says, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And what we need to make connection with here is why Jesus comes to the earth. One major reason why Jesus would come again to the earth is to bring fire or judgment. Even Jesus himself in Luke 12 verse 49 says, I am come to send fire on the earth, and what will I if it be already kindled? And what will I if it be already kindled? I am come to send fire on the earth. But stop and think for just a moment of the two types of fire, or at least the, the two types of responses that come from the fire. When he comes, he brings judgment. But when the Spirit came upon the early church at another Jewish festival, the festival of Pentecost, what did we see of the fire? But the fire the, that, that landed upon the 120 in the upper room. showing us the power of the Holy Spirit upon them. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit cometh upon you, and you shall be my witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and Judea and all of Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the, of the world. But when he comes again, fire of judgment. Back in John chapter 5, we heard Jesus say in verses 22 and 23, For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto the Son. 
that all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son uh, honoreth not the Father which has sent him. In Acts chapter 10, verses 42 and 43, it says, And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. In other words, this is speaking of Jesus. This is Peter in the, in the house of Cornelius. Verse 43, To him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. But notice, he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead. In other words, the judge of the living and the dead. And lastly, in, in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, a statement made by the Apostle Paul to the, uh, to the Athenians, the, the philosophers. He said in verse 31 of Acts 17, because he has appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained, whereof he has given assurance unto all men in that he has raised him from the dead. Do we know who he is? Do we know who the man in linen in, in Ezekiel is? It has to be Yeshua. It is Yeshua. It is Jesus, the Mashiach of Israel, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. God in the flesh. The obedient Son. The eternal Son. The eternal God. The creator of the heavens and the earth. We will pick up from here and we may... try to get through the rest of chapter 10 and try to do 11 together next time as well. So, read up, read ahead, and continue to search the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, thank you for bringing us through this passage and this time that we have spent together. It is, Lord, our desire that we would learn the preciousness of worshiping you in spirit and in truth with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, with everything that is within us, with everything that you have given us strength to do. I pray, Father, that you will continue to lead us and guide us into all of your truth. And that you would make us ready, Lord, to be your representatives in this dying world, in this impure place in which we live. But we are so thankful, Lord God, that you have not taken your glory out or away from us, but that you are very much with us in spirit and in your truth. I 
pray, Father, that you'll continue to anoint us and to bless us with wisdom and grace, with mercy and strength. Help us, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.